0: Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 202 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope this special episode helps you lead like never before. Yeah, it is bonus week because we hit episode 200 this week. You're getting free coffee every day, I hope, from Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, Follow me on socials to get that. Also, uh, we are putting together a launch team this week, and I'll tell you more about that in a second. In the meantime, uh, we are going to do... An Ask Carrie episode, and there's some great questions here. Questions on funding your church, questions on, well, I've got one on how do you do a great interview? Like if I'm setting up a leadership podcast, what are your interview tips? Very excited about answering that question because it's something I think a lot about. Somebody who's been leading a church for a while and says, nobody respects me. How do I get respect? Also a great question about burnout and how do you create a healthy um, staff culture? Finally, among others, I'm also going to tackle uh, a question I really appreciated. And I mean, we're picking from like literally over 500 questions that have come in, so can't do them all. Uh, But I had mentioned in a uh, previous episode and also in my writing that we had a front door issue at our church in that we just needed to increase the number of people that came in. And so uh, he says, how did you do it? We have seen a huge increase in that. I'll explain some of the things that we've done to help increase the number of new guests that walk in. So I hope you find these uh, the answer to these questions helpful. Uh, we do these Ask Carries once in a while. I can't answer every question because literally we get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions, but keep them coming. Uh, if you show up on my blog, you will see a little widget that says, got a question? Uh, click on that, leave us a voicemail, and uh, we'll see what we can do to, to get to your question uh, this summer or this fall. In the meantime, I, I shared this with you yesterday. I just want to repeat it if in case you missed it, but we have something really big happening in September. I've got a brand new book coming out called Didn't See It Coming. It is all about anticipating and overcoming the seven challenges that no one expects, but pretty much everyone experiences. Stuff like cynicism and burnout and pride and disconnectedness and even emptiness. You know, what do you do when all your dreams come true uh, and you're still empty? Um, That's what this book is about. And I'm really excited about it. It's my most personal book yet. It really is designed to speak to the interior life of anyone who's in leadership, whether you're in ministry or in the marketplace. And this week, literally, we are building our launch team. And there's room for up to 2,000 of you On this launch team, yeah, we're going big. Uh, It's going to be a big launch in September. And if you want to get in on the ground floor, here's what you'll get. Uh, number one, you'll get a free copy of the book, an advanced reader copy. We will send one to you. Uh, secondly, you're going to get access to an exclusive private Facebook group, which I will be active in. And so will everyone else on the launch team will share insider stuff with you. And then in exchange, we're going to ask you to help us get the word out. We're going to provide you with resources, with all kinds of things that you can use on your channels. Are you interested? Because if you are, head on over this week to leadlikeneverbefore.com. And then you'll see a little tab either on the hamburger menu on mobile or you can go if you're on a browser, you know, just go to the top navigation menu and you'll see a little button that says didn't see it coming. Click on that and then click on join the launch team. Fill out a little application form. We'll be in touch. Two thousand people. We got room for up to that many on this team. So I'm very excited for that. We have some incredible people involved in this launch. And uh, yeah, we're going to be working on that this summer in the background, getting ready for a September 4th release of my new book, Didn't See It Coming. I'd love to have you be a part of that. And in the meantime, I'm going to jump into answering some of your leadership questions that have come in. So let's see, where will we start? Uh, Why don't we start with this? We'll go from some current questions and kind of work our way backwards. Okay, so... Question number one. Oh, this is from uh, a guy who's been reading Lasting Impact. Love his question. And here we go.
1: Hey, Carrie,
2: I am currently listening to your book entitled Lasting Impact. And though I find it filled with good information, honestly, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed with it all. As a pastor, I have a question. How do you finance this new model of ministry moving into the future?
0: Well, you're not alone in finding the book a little bit overwhelming. Um, we tackle a lot of issues in the book, and I love your question. Like, how do I fund this? Right? How, how do I how do I try to reach new people? So, a um, couple of, of questions. Number one, if you have, if you're trying to transition a church, and I'm not 100 percent sure your situation, you've got to cast a really really big vision and. Uh, you got to let them know why this is important. Now, when I started in ministry and we made a lot of those changes that I write about in my last book, Lasting Impact, um, you know, about how to reach unchurched people and everything. I mean, we were still having bake sales and bazaars. I mean, that's how bad stewardship was. And I just started to challenge people and say, guys, you need to give, you need to tithe. So that helps. But let me let me take the more advanced level of the question. So where we are right now, I mean, half the people who walk into the door of Connexus Church, where I serve, um, they don't have a church background. So it's not like they were raised in a culture where like, guess what? We give 10% of everything we have to God's work. They don't. I mean, 20 bucks is a generous donation in their mind. So how do you do that? Well, number one, you've got to see it as a spiritual issue. Um, This is something that I've really, you know, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people find fundraising to be kind of like, I don't want to do it. That's not spiritual. Dude, it is very spiritual. Okay. You cannot read the New Testament and not run into the subject of money or giving Jesus talked about it extensively. And one of the reasons I think Jesus talked about it extensively, and this is why I, I love to talk about money and help people give, is I think it is the number one contender for an idol in my heart um, that money can get in the way. And the best antidote to greed I know is giving. So I look at it this way, all right? When, when I want to help people give, um, I'm actually helping them grow closer to God. Now, how am I getting, I know that, that you're saying that sounds televangelist. No, it doesn't, okay? Think about it this way. I'm passionate about having people read their Bible. I, I read my Bible today. You probably read your Bible today. Uh, I, I have no problem with that. I want people to pray. I want people to serve. I think that that is a really important aspect of Christian discipleship. And I want people to give. And, and I want this for them because I know if they can break the grip of money in their lives, they are gonna be so much better off. And so this is something I want for them pastorally. This is something I want for them spiritually. I want it to the point where honestly, if they gave to some other organization, that would be okay because I want this for them even more than I want it from them. And so I think if you go into it with that heart, Um, you're already at an advantage. So then the next question is, well, you want them just to give it away to charity? Like, how does that work? No, no, no. Of course I want them to give it to our church. Why do I want them to give it to our church? I had this conversation recently with somebody who said, you know, why, why shouldn't I give all my money to Global Mission? I said, you should give money to Global Mission. We give money to Global Mission. But here's why I am so passionate about funding the local church. There are people who give to clean water, and we, we do that. There are people who sponsor children, and we do that. And lots of people are going to jump in on those causes. I don't know a whole lot of people who are going to jump in on the cause of creating a great church that unchurched people love to attend in the cities that we are in at Connexas Church, like... Nobody in America is waking up going, how can I fund the church in central Ontario? Nobody in your town is waking up going, how can we reach unchurched people in the town of city of blank, insert your town here. All right, nobody's doing that except your people. So that's why I'm really passionate. I mean, if I really believe that God is gonna change lives through our church, then I am gonna fund our church. And I want you to join me as we fund the church. So then what else can you do? Well, um, you can make it easy for people to give. Uh, that's another thing. A, a lot of churches still operate on checks and cash. Well, uh, if you're living in 1982, that is a fantastic strategy. If you're living in 2018, um, most people don't give that way. I mean, we have a giving kiosk with like tap. You know, you, you can, you can give via credit card. You can get, give via debit card. You can give via tap. Uh, We also do most of our giving, 70, 80% is online giving now. It's automated and we walk people through the steps that they need to take to set that up at their bank. Why do we do it that way? Because that's how people give today. That's how people actually process money today. Um, Very few people carry cash, even fewer people carry checks. Um, We still allow people to give via cash and checks, but that is a minority of all the money that comes in. And then third, you just got to cast a vision. You got to just keep talking about this over and over again and help people take a step. Probably the biggest step is to go from not giving to giving. And so several times a year, we give a jump in point, say, hey, if you haven't been giving here, we want to make it really easy for you and we'll show them how to do it. And then maybe they're given, you know, five, 10 bucks a week or whatever. It is much easier to move someone from some level of giving to a meaningful level of giving Uh, than it is to move a non-giver into a giver. So you wanna help them take that step to become givers and then you can move them sort of into a place where giving is a a significant part of their life. So I hope that helps. Uh, I love that question. Thank you so much and uh, keep them coming. Uh, Here's another question. This one comes from a pastor in Tucson, Arizona, thinking about starting his own leadership podcast. So uh, I love this. Here's the question.
1: Hey, Carrie. My name is Zach Emboden. I'm a pastor here in Tucson, Arizona, and I love your podcast. It's been a huge help for me, and I know our ministry teams here a lot of us listen to it. And so, you create lots of good conversation dialogue for us and access to people that we never would have a conversation with. So, so thanks. Um, question. So, we've been considering starting our kind of our own like for our church members and our ministry teams, like a little leadership podcast that we could do once a month and interviewing, talking about leadership here in New Life. And I was curious if there's something you could share with us on how do you prepare for a good interview? So, I saw you, you know, the podcast two ago, you had a conference with John Ortberg. Just curious if there's a, a process or a system you use on, you know, okay, I'm, I'm interviewing John. Do you send know, the questionnaire? And how do you create um, the, all the back end stuff um, to make your front end look so good and productive and helpful? So was curious if there's a way to share that information with
0: other people. Thanks. Bye. Zach, thank you so much for that question. Uh, you do get the heart behind this podcast. I want to bring you conversations you otherwise wouldn't hear. That's it. And I love that you want to start one. And uh, thank you for asking the question because I think about how to do a good interview a ridiculous amount of time. And I actually listen to other people's interviewing techniques and study uh, how to do an interview. And I would say there are really two schools and I subscribe to one school. One, one school, if you ever listen to Tim Ferriss, is he does deep, deep research. I mean, he is, he's got a team on it. They research almost everything about a person they're interviewing before they get to it. So he goes in with just pages and pages of notes. And I think he's honestly one of the best interviewers today. And, and I think that's great. Now, I do not follow that school. Uh, I learn a lot from him, but I don't do a lot of deep research. There there are exceptions to that. When I interviewed Brian Houston for the first time, uh, I did a lot of research, like hours and hours and hours of research. Number one, because I didn't know Brian all that well. Uh, Number two, I knew he was extremely well-known. And number three, I knew he had had a tough time from the media. Um, And so I watched some of the documentaries about him. And I thought, you know, I just, I want to be a different voice, one one that's different than what he's used to hearing. And in fact, Brian's been back a couple times. times. Uh, he's been a real friend since we did that first interview. And I think that's in part because I did my homework. But for the most part, you know, these are leaders I'm tracking with at some level. Occasionally I come in blind, but I don't do a lot of prep. Why do I not do a lot of prep? Well, there is a second school of thought, and this one is along the lines of Larry King, who did virtually no prep for his interviews. He's, and 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 I don't mean this to sound insulting, but his school of thinking was, be dumb like the audience. Like even, you know, with a well-known person, the audience does not know a lot about that person. And he said, I don't want to be afraid to ask a stupid question. I, I want to speak on behalf of listeners. And I'm kind of more in that camp where... Because if I, if I end up reading you know, all their books, then I end up doing a PhD level interview with questions so specific that, that people are not that interested in the answer. If I just kind of come at it more spontaneously, I find that I do a better interview. So some other tips for interviews. Um, Zach, you could get me going for 45 minutes here because this is a passion point, but I'll try to be brief. Number one, Follow a trail of curiosity that you are interested in. If you're not interested in the interview, nobody else is going to be, you know. So why why are you talking to this guy? Why are you talking to this woman? What What is interesting to you about what they've done? And then craft your questions around that. Now, if you've got a really well-known guest, for example, if I've got Craig Grishel or Andy Stanley, I could go in a million different directions. But what I'll often ask them is, what are you passionate about right now? Because they've given a million interviews. And if I can get a passion point that they are really like, what is it like? I'll be interviewing Andy on his new book, Irresistible. I'm going to ask Andy before the interview, what part of this do you most want to talk about? So when, when Andy gets back to me, and if he's able to give me an answer, I will focus on that because I know if he wants to go deeper on that, it's going to be a great interview. Then what do I do? Prior to the interview, I'll usually prepare ten to fifteen questions. Um, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but ten to fifteen questions. And I used to do like the whole background: how do you get into this? I rarely do it now. I I, I kind of start on a, a main subject. So I interviewed Bobby Grinwald recently, and I guess I did do some background there. I went into, but I went into parts of the story that didn't get told elsewhere. Or at least I haven't, you know, heard it elsewhere. And then I went into like AI because I was really fascinated by that. And I thought he would be interested in that. But I'll just craft like, you know, a dozen questions and I will send them to the guest 24 hours in advance. Then when I set up the interview, we always have like this little 10 minute banter back and forth. And I will say, I don't think I've ever missed this with a guest, but I will say, listen, this is not live. Um, When we're done or halfway through, if you don't like what you said, just let me know. We will cut it out, period. Period. And I know some people are scared of that because they're like, well, what if they say something really juicy Like, and they want to cut it out? Listen, bottom line, I want the leader to trust me. I want them to feel like they're safe on my platform. Because if they're safe, they're probably going to talk about things that they maybe wouldn't ordinarily talk about. And I mean, that is a commitment I keep. I have cut stuff out of interviews for leaders. I did an interview live once at an event that we had agreed ahead of time would be broadcast on my podcast. And uh, leader, if I told you his name, most of you would know exactly who he is. Very well-known leader internationally. And we did this interview and like he just started going places and talking about specific instances in his life that I thought were extremely vulnerable. I wasn't like, you know, peppering him for that, but he just went deep fast. And when it was over, I'm like, are you okay with that? He goes, I don't know. I don't know. We texted back and forth the next day. He said, you know what? Do you mind if we don't run it? I really don't want to run it. And do you mind if we pull that down from the event? So I arranged for it to be pulled off the platform for the event. And I have not, I don't even have a copy of that interview anymore. Um, Guess what? He'll come back on my podcast. And anything that was supposed to be said, we'll say it down the road in a way that he feels more comfortable. Now, I didn't embarrass him. I didn't trap him. He just went, you know how it is. Sometimes you say things and you're like, I don't know whether I should have said that. He had one of those days. Well, I'm not going to embarrass him or have a gotcha moment. So that gives the guest confidence to go a little bit deeper than maybe they would otherwise. And at the end, I'm like, are you okay with everything? And they're like, yeah, great. Or like, can I listen back? Yep. Here's the clip. Yeah, I'm good with that. That's fine. So so I get their sign off. And then the other thing, and this is really important. So I've set up already the condition of safety for the guest where I'm not out to be a journalist that like you know gets five million clicks because somebody said something controversial. That's so cheap, doesn't last. I'm not interested in those kind of relationships or conversations anyway. And then finally, <laughs> most of what I ask in the interview is not in those questions. They say something, a guest says something, and I'm like, huh, okay, tell me more. Or all right, I didn't, I didn't know that. Can. Can you explain that? Or how are you feeling at that time? Like that must've have, must have felt like a kick in the stomach and just see what they have to say. If you follow your curiosity and you know, sometimes I'll listen back to an interview, it's a good discipline. And, and I will listen back to an interview I did and I'll be like, oh, I hope you ask him this or I hope you ask her this. And then later on, I'll ask that question. I'm like, good, that wasn't in the script. But like, you gotta follow your trail of curiosity. And, and I, sometimes it's a dead end and then, okay, you move on to the next question. Uh, Sometimes I get to question two and none of the other questions I wrote down on the sheet uh, I covered and I tell the guest I could ask, can I ask some follow-up questions? And then at the end, you know, how do you make sure you haven't hoodwinked your guest? You just say, are you okay with everything we talked about? And, you know, handful of times I'm like, no, cut that out. They're like, no, cut that out. But, um, for the rest, yeah, they're pretty good with it. So just follow your trail of curiosity. And if you're interested in it or you think the listener might be, um, then yeah, they probably are. Finally, the, the other thing I would say is I'm always interested in the backstory. Content you can get anywhere. You can buy the book. You can read chapter eight. Uh, you can hear some talk they gave somewhere. On whatever you're interested in. So, I don't mind covering the content, but what I'm really interested in is the story behind the content. That's why you will hear me asking questions like, what was that like? Like, what did that feel? What made you do that? Like, when there were so many different options, I want the backstory, I want the interview behind the interview. Because we live in an age where content is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And you can get it off my podcast, but you can get it in a million other places. So what I want is the backstory. Like if you're sitting around a campfire at night with this leader and and they're kind of opening up their heart to you and saying, you know, wow, yeah, I didn't know whether it was going to work. And I was scared. You're like, well, good, because I'm scared. I mean, that's those are the kind of conversations that are gold. So thank you so much, Zach, for asking the question. I probably overanswered it, but I really, really appreciate it. Um, got a question of a pastor of a small church, which is interesting. Um, he knows a lot of the people and has known them for a long time, and now he's trying to be their leader, and he's trying to figure it out.
3: I am not sure if this would fit many other people, but... I'm a pastor of a church of about 140 people. I have known most of the people in the church for 25, 30, even 40 years before we started the church. We were mostly peers. Many went to Bible college together. How do I respond as the pastor with rightful authority? ability to lead people that were always peers and pretty much exact equals, even attending the same churches for decades, and now I'm their pastor. Thanks.
0: No, I appreciate that question a lot. And um, I think you're probably in a bit of a unique situation in that just based on the timeline, it sounds like you might be an older leader starting a church. But I'll tell you where I hear this question all the time. I hear it from young leaders who grew up in the church, and then all of a sudden they're leading people that they still feel are like Mr. and Mrs. Blank. Or you know, they come back to a church after being away for a decade and they used to be a, a participant in that church, a member, and now all of a sudden they're the leader. So that is actually more common than you think, particularly for young leaders. So I want to answer it from both perspectives. And uh, what do you do when you know all of a sudden one day you're member X and the next day you are the leader? And I think that question is a little bit close to home for me because I came in as a 30-year-old you know, in leadership, trying to lead a whole bunch of people who are twice my age, who literally could have been my parents or my grandparents. And I think what you're really getting at is the question of authority. Like, where does that come from and how does that happen? Um, well, you know what I did from day one, and, and you've, you've got to nuance this accurately, is you just have to behave like a leader. You have to behave like you're the leader. Now, I was still a student. I was still in seminary. But I had an incredible boss. His name was George Cunningham. And he was sort of sent by the denomination to make sure I didn't blow the place to smithereens or something and and supervise me. But he never treated me like a student leader. He just said, you're the leader now. You lead this thing. And at 30, did I really know how to lead it? Well, who knows? But I did. And I never really thought about it. I just went in as a leader. And it's like, okay, here we are uh, let's, let's do something. And so it really came down to an authority thing. And I've seen some 20 year olds who command respect in a room and some 40 year olds who don't. And so I think, um, your authority comes out of your leadership. Well, how does that work? Well, I think a couple of different things you can do to try to properly and humbly establish that authority. Number one, you've got to craft a clear mission, vision, and um, values for your organization. So you want to, you want to, you want to really establish yourself as a leader. And that's one of the first things I did was I I set a new shared mission, vision, values, and direction. I blogged on that endlessly. So you can actually just search mission vision uh, inside my blog. You'll find dozens of posts on that. So. Uh, if you want to know how to do that, I also wrote a book about, well, actually leading change without losing it, my previous book two books ago. And Lasting Impact talks a lot about that process. So you can read those as well. So hopefully that helps with that. Secondly, you you want to do it humbly but firmly. So you know, when you're preaching, particularly in a small church like yours, you can use Sunday morning to cast vision. and I did. I would cast vision, I would talk about where we're going. And then the third thing is, I would look for some quick wins. One of the reasons a lot of leaders languish in leadership is because, yes, you're in the seat of leadership, but you don't have many of the the results of effective leadership yet. So, you know, it sounds like you got a church of 140. I'm sure there was a time when it was a church of 14 or whatever. So you wanna to point to uh, momentum, to progress. You wanna start celebrating life change stories that are reflective of your mission and vision. Uh, you wanna talk about the future. You wanna have a clear plan for the future. So I think when you start behaving in that way as a leader and you've got the results of leadership, eventually um, people will respect you as the leader. At least that's what happened to me when I was 30. Now it wasn't the same group that you know I was with the whole time, But I went in pretty young and had to figure that out on the spot. So I hope that helps. Uh, The last thing I would say is maybe there are some people who will never get it. And you just have to be okay with that. Part of leadership is not being understood. And some people who saw you as a peer might leave or may never respect you. And that is just something that may happen. But I think if you've got the results of leadership and you're behaving like a leader, eventually most people will uh, line up behind your leadership if it's effective. Um, Okay, next question. This one is all about burnout. And here is a question about how to create a staff culture that mitigates against burnout. Love this question.
3: Hey, Carrie, it's Michael DeHaan. Uh, Just started listening to and reading uh, your blog and listening to your podcast and I've really enjoyed it. A quick question that I have, I know you talk a lot about burnout as a leader and kind of the experience that you went through. Uh, One of the things that I'm curious about is burnout amongst staff members. Uh, So maybe you are the leader of a church and you've got a staff under you. How do you begin to value and appreciate your staff members in a way that does not cause them to burn out? The reason I'm asking is I am a youth pastor. And I'm about to transition to become a lead pastor in a church uh, where I've been serving for the past two years, and it's becoming evident to me that one of the things that is going to have to change is the way that we treat our current staff members. Uh, it, it seems like uh, certain things are taking place. It's it's a it's not a simple church mentality. It's a it's we are overloading our staff members to the point where they're getting they're feeling the weight of it
0: hey thank you so much for that question i appreciate the way it's framed and yeah i do talk a lot about burnout you know what it's like it's a serious issue and i think a lot of people struggle with it not only from the my goodness i'm burned out and i can't work anymore to low-grade burnout i want to write about that someday low-grade burnout but i appreciate you know the desire to try to create a healthy culture so I think you already identified some of the problem. And when you head into this new position, uh, I think you've already hit on a, a key, which is you don't have a simple church. So I take it that's where you are right now, uh, but you have a chance to craft something from scratch, which I would suggest you need to transition to a simple church model. When you're out, by the way, what do we mean by that? Well, read Simple Church by Tom Rayner and Eric Geiger Or read, or and, they're both great books, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Ministry. And that's by Andy Stanley, Lane Jones, and Reggie Joyner. Fantastic book. So you want to look at those two books, and they really argue for a simpler model of ministry, which is something we've been living in for the last 10 years. Here's the benefit. If you choose a few things and you do them well, you're not out seven nights a week. Because when you're out seven nights a week, you are never, ever going to be rested. You're going to be always leading you and your people to burnout. So uh, my number one thing is, you know, when it comes to creating a healthy culture on your staff, you can't actually control people's off time. Like if somebody wants to stay up gaming till three o'clock in the morning, I mean, you can tell them to stop, but, but you know, you can't be there at their house, like their mom going, go to bed. You can't do that. If somebody wants to do a side hustle where they're out, you know, Um, you know, every single night of the week working on some project or some startup. And they're, you know, they're working every weekend or they got some crazy hobby, they're ultra marathoners. And, you know, they never give themselves a break. You can't really control that. Ultimately, that becomes a performance issue. And maybe they're not going to be with you for very long. But what you can control is you can control the pace of leadership at the church Or in your organization. So this is what, as I got healthier, as I got healthier, here's what this has meant for us. It's meant that uh, although we never really used to have a common day off, over the last decade, we've moved to a common day off. So generally speaking, the Conexus staff, with a few exceptions, they have every Friday, every Saturday off. That's something even in this little company that does the podcast, the blog, and everything, You know, this summer, I just said, Friday's off, guys, no meetings, no meetings. And they're like, but you need more meetings. It's like, listen, work expands to the time available to fill it. So I don't have any meetings really booked for Fridays. And I take Saturdays off. You know, if you're really going to take a Sabbath, and that's my summer project to take a Sabbath, you need a day before the Sabbath to get ready for the Sabbath. Like you need to cut your grass, clean your car, whatever you need to do, get groceries, uh, on the Friday so that you can be off on the Saturday because Sunday through Thursday are ministry days. So now it may not, those, those are not magic days of the week, but um, you need to have some common pause time to have a healthy thing. And then generally, I don't think you need to be out more than one or two nights a week. I got it down to one or two nights a month when I was lead pastor of Connexus And that's in a growing church of over a thousand. So I think you can do that. Uh, The other thing I would suggest to you is that when you meet with your staff, always, always, always start with how are you? How are you doing? Not what are you doing? Because most of us are just, okay, we got 15 projects, boom, 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 boom. Really let your staff know that you care about them. Like, how are you doing? How are we? How are you feeling? How are things going? And again, you can't control their marriage, you can't control how much they sleep. You can't control what they do with their spare time, but you can be an interested leader who helps them along the journey. And then what you've done by creating a sustainable organizational pace is you have taken away the organizational reasons that somebody would be burned out. And I've had those conversations. They're, you know, sometimes I meet with staff over the years and they're like, man, I'm shredded. I'm so exhausted. And, and you know, I'll listen for a little while and then I always bring it back and say, is it anything we're doing? And they'll be like, well, it's a pretty intense pace and everything, but yeah, no, I had Friday and Saturday off and I wasn't out at night. Yeah. You know what? My life's out of control. Okay. Well, that's a different issue. So that's how I've handled that one. I hope that can help you. And I love the fact that you are asking the questions. So thank you so much for that. We got a couple of other questions we want to get to before we're done. Um, Okay. Got a question about opening up the front door of our church. I had said earlier that we at Conexus, according to Tony Morgan, who came up and consulted with us, didn't have a backdoor problem at our church. We had a front door problem at our church. Well, here's the question.
3: Hey, Carrie, thanks a lot for the podcast and just your desire to always be helping leaders grow in their influence. My question is regarding uh, the front door issue that you guys had there at Conexus. You had stated on the podcast with Tony Morgan that you saw some improvement in that area. And I'm curious if there was some specific things that your leadership did to improve that front door issue. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for that question. Um, I believe that was episode 140. So you can go back and give that a listen. And yeah, we did have that problem a couple of years ago. I kept thinking, you know, we were growing and everything, but I kept thinking, oh, it must be the back door, right? People come and they don't stick. And he looked at our numbers and said, actually, you have a front door issue. You, we were having, I don't know, 500 new guests uh, a year, which, which is great. You know, you're like, oh, I'd love 500 people, period. But he said, you should have one new guest for every person that attends your church. Well, at that point, that was like a thousand people. He's like, you just don't have enough people in the front door. And we were an invite, invite, invite culture. So, what did we change? We changed a few things. Number one, if you go to uh, an episode I did with Rich Birch, you will know, you will get the details of what I'm talking about. So, Scroll back and give a good listen to Rich Birch episode 179 of this podcast on the Church Growth Flywheel. He walks you through exactly what you need to do. We followed that formula to a T and what it means is better series promotion. So usually what we do now is we say to our people, hey, we got a new series starting in two weeks. Hey, we got a new series starting in one week. Here are some cards, here are some resources. This is what the series is about, invite a friend. Yes, we speak in series. And the reason we do messages in series it's like New Year's Day every three to six weeks. It means that you get a new beginning and people think in series. So we've done a lot more promotion. We've done some social promotion. Uh, we've done Facebook Lives. We have encouraged our people to invite, 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 invite. A couple of years ago, Jeff Brody, our lead pastor at Connexus, stood up and cast a vision of not just being for the community, but for being for four people. In other words, we want everybody who goes to our church to start praying by name every day for four people who don't know Jesus. And we want you to build a relationship with them. And we want you to invite them. Well, it's been incredible to see the life change stories that come in. And you're like, well, why four people? Well, first of all, if you're trying to reach everybody, you're going to end up reaching nobody. Secondly, four is doable. You know, if you're like, hey, I want you to build into 40 people. It's like, ah, I don't have time. We have soccer practice, right? Four people, most people can handle that. It could be a family member, a parent, a brother-in-law. It could be a neighbor. It could be somebody at work. And so we have cast that vision consistently for the last two years. Coupling that with better series promotion and we've seen our front door increase like double over the last few years, and we're also experiencing the lag benefits of those lead activities. And now we've got growth this year of between 20 and 30 percent, which is exceptional. So all that means is you added more people into the front door, and uh, they stuck around. So. I hope that helps. And thanks so much for that question. Uh, It is one that a lot of leaders struggle with. And the front door thing, that was a big surprise for me. Okay. Wow. We got one more question. And uh, this is on, well, you know, there's a lot of issues that sort of come up again and again. This one is on influence and how you can gain influence for student ministry in a church.
2: Hey, Carrie. My name is Patrick. I'm 29 years old from Kansas City, Missouri. I've been doing youth ministry for eight years now, specifically middle school ministry, and I've been recently feeling led to pursue church planting or campus pastoring. However, I just finished episode 121 with James Emery White on Generation Z, and as we know, Generation Z will soon be the new culture, which is truly the first post-Christian generation. So my question is, If this generation is going to grow up further from God than any other generation, how do you think this should affect the way we emphasize youth ministry? Specifically, do you think the church is succeeding or failing at empowering youth pastors in the importance of what they do? And why does it seem so often that youth pastors are viewed as the JV team? We've all heard pastors say things like, Oh, I could never do youth ministry, or I'm not called to middle schoolers, or even when are you going to become a real pastor? And what I hear is, and what I think many youth pastors hear is, adult ministry is more important than youth ministry and children's ministry. But if we're actually called the people, those who are far from God, and Generation Z will be farther from God than any other generation, how should that change the way we view church ministry as a whole? Thanks, Carrie. Love you. Appreciate you. Thanks a lot.
0: Okay. Sometimes you just got to love the way somebody phrases a question. That is a well-formed question. You've clearly thought about this. I appreciate uh, the time and the effort you put behind that question, Patrick. And uh, to put it quickly, I would say you're the kind of leader, just in you know 90 seconds, that I would probably listen to. A couple of things you did really well. Number one, you explained the why behind the what. Number two, you define the problem. Number three, there's an urgency and a passion in your voice that would make me want to sit up and take notice as a leader. Now, all that said, I think you, you, number one, raise a really real tension that student ministry is something, middle school, whatever, it happens down the hall, so I don't have to think about it as a senior leader. Is that real? Yes. Is it good? No, uh, but it is real. And uh, episode 121 with James Emery White was very eye-opening. If listeners, you haven't listened to it, this is the benefit of having 200 plus episodes. Just go back. It's free anytime, any day of the week. And what I would say, I'm so thankful, uh, Patrick. I think a lot of the seeds of the answer to your question were planted and nurtured by my friend Clay Scroggins, when last summer he released, uh, I think, the definitive work on the issue of how to lead when you're not in charge. that's the title of his book. You should pick it up on Amazon if you haven't. Um, And you can go back to episode 153 of this podcast and listen to my conversation with Clay where he has all kinds of ideas about what gives you influence when you're not in charge. So one of them is to become ridiculously good at what you do. And I think that's really important. Um, sometimes senior leaders like myself will unfairly treat other teams as though that they were junior varsity, the JV team. However, however, uh, sometimes there are leaders who lead like they are JV. And that's a different issue. So what you want to do is you want to be ridiculously good at what you do. Um, if I was in your shoes, here's what I would do. I would want to be respectful of my bosses. I would want to, support whatever is going on at the church, but I would just commit to creating a killer student ministry. And I don't mean like amazing production and lights and the whole mean. I just mean like great student ministry that demands attention, where you are seeing dozens, hundreds of lives changed on a regular basis. I mean, you think about some of the stories of, well, at this point, kind of the last generation, but Willow Creek was basically a youth group that outgrew the church it was part of. What was North Point when it started in the 90s? A youth group, a student ministry that outgrew the adult ministry. That's what Andy did. That's what Bill Hybels did. Incredible stuff. And I think that is still happening. Some of the best ministries of tomorrow are happening in the student ministries of today. And so what I would do is really focus on producing a great ministry Uh, asking those questions that you ask about what's happening with Gen Z and are we losing them and creating that urgency. And then to senior pastors who are listening, what I would encourage you to do is enlist the help of your student ministry people to figure out what you can do to make your adult services more attractive to Gen Z and to millennials. Because if Generation Z isn't interested in your main church service, neither will unchurched people be interested in your main church service. So you ought to listen to the leaders around you. Anyway, Patrick, I hope that helps. Uh, man, I got to tell you, we could have done a lot more questions. We didn't even get to all the ones that I thought we were going to get to, which means we probably should do another episode like this at some point. Yeah. How about this summer? Um, hey guys, uh, thank you so much for listening. We're back next Tuesday with a fresh episode. If you haven't yet joined my book launch team, head on over to carrynewhoff.com or leadlikeneverbefore.com. You'll see a little tab that has the name of my next book called Didn't See It Coming on there. Click on that, hit join the launch team. I would love to have you in the private Facebook group that will be launching Didn't See It Coming in September. You'll get a free advanced reader copy of the book. You will get all kinds of bonuses. We are going to talk in the group. I'm going to poke my head in there from time to time. I would love to have your help. And uh, I got to tell you, it's going to be an exciting journey as we get ready to launch. Didn't see it coming this September. Thank you so much, everybody. Really appreciate you. And I do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.